Welcome to what I know will be an illuminating episode of Perception Reception. And I'm really thrilled today to be with and conversing with one of my idols, uh, Bill McInturf. Bill's the co-founder and the managing partner of Public Opinion Strategies, one of the nation's largest and most respected public affairs and survey research firms. His firm has been described as a quote-unquote GOP powerhouse and currently represents 11 U.S. senators, six governors, and 44 members of Congress. In fact, it may be more than that now. I, I just pulled this off of their website. So <laughs> Bill, yeah. along with Hart Re Research Associates, conducts the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Uh, Bill, welcome. Uh, really Thank you, Rick. Really to have you here. Uh, I've been looking over what you sent me, which was your very compelling uh, October 2020 national update. And uh, there was really a lot of eye-opening news in there. But the one thing that honestly really stunned me uh, was the dramatic change in attitudes towards the role of the federal government. Uh, in it, you asked if you could send just one of the following two messages to the federal government right now. Would it be lend me a hand or would it be leave me alone? And pre-COVID, eight years, 2011 to 2019, the response was 54% leave me alone versus 38% lend me a hand. But now in the COVID era, in fact, in August of 2020, it completely flipped. 57% saying lend me a hand and 36% saying leave me alone. If you can talk about that in terms of the implications for the coming election bill, not only the presidential, but also Congress. So, for example, if a new stimulus bill doesn't happen before Election Day, who gets blamed? Well, I think it is a consequential qu uh, question. and I think it did the right thing by pulling it out. Um, here's the reason I included it. Our country has a history, the Great Depression, World War II, um, Sputnik, actually. Uh, now, let's go more recently. The financial meltdown on Lehman in 2008, 9-11. Every time there's been a massive national emergency, the response has been a larger, bigger government. And what I was letting people know is that the 100-year pandemic and the attitudes about the coronavirus, the economic dislocation, was creating the same environment where we were seeing a receptivity to the role of government that I believe is going to tip public policy, at least in the near term, next couple of years, to be more expansive, more open uh, about a larger role of government. That includes the coronavirus bailout, but of course, there's the other thing. Uh, it could mean expansions in healthcare. And if, if uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden's elected with the Democratic Senate, uh, believe me, there could be any sorts of additional taxes and much bigger role for government. All of it premised on the kind of impact the coronavirus had, has had on these attitudes. So if the stimulus bill, the, the, the bailout bill, whatever we want to call it, uh, doesn't happen, this new version that, that is being negotiated where Pelosi's at one number and, and uh, Mnuchin's at another number, and um, I haven't figured out where, where uh, Senator McConnell's at on it exactly. If it doesn't happen, though, uh, do, do you have a sense of who's going to bear the blame heading into a I, I, that I, I don't have. A, we've not been asking that question. I shouldn't speculate. But I would say, again, if I were an incumbent U.S. senator, I understand those men and women running on the ballot today. They want to say they've done something and they want to say and um, 
you know, um, I just read, a, you know, we're getting our estimates now for the fiscal year, a three point something trillion dollar deficit. The amount of money that we've spent on the coronavirus has been extraordinary, but that's the point of the question you just asked. The public appetite would be for more. And if I were an incumbent running for office right now, Republican or Democrat, I'm sure I'd be happy to just uh, end the last two weeks with saying, and you get more and there's more coming. So uh, I think we'll see what happens. We're at a dysfunctional time, but I, I think you can watch from this survey data, the sort of political imperative to try to do more. Yeah, I mean, it has been really uh, clear. I mean, and I can, you know, you can see it all around you. There, there are people that are losing their businesses. And so uh, uh, they're, they're just praying that something happens that can help them just stay afloat. Uh, you know, the update also addresses, um, and I found this fascinating as well, the six states that you say will decide right. the presidential race. So there's Arizona, Florida, Michigan. North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And I, I love the way you did it. You took a look at the Clinton versus Trump October 15th polling numbers in each of the six states. And then Biden versus Trump had to have polling numbers as of October 15th this year. So just literally five days ago. And while the polling shows Biden currently beating Trump in all six of those states, two things stood out to me. First, in three of the states, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina, Biden leads by only three points. And I have to presume that's within the margin of error. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he leads by six points in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. But the other thing that really struck me is that as of October 15, 2016, Hillary was beating Trump by 12 points in Michigan, nine points in Pennsylvania, six points in Wisconsin. And she still lost in those three states, plus also then losing Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. So any concept of what happened in those three weeks that accounted for that swing for Clinton? I mean, how did things go so far south so fast? And how does Biden prevent the same thing from happening, especially when his margin over Trump is only between three to six points in all six of those states? Well, I think there's a lot of things to unpack from that question. Uh, number one, the October 15th numbers were after that Access Hollywood story about Trump. It was the low point of the campaign and uh, at, and it had consequence. And then he kind of bounced back. So that was sort of the low point before the bounce back. So that's one factor. Um, the second factor is part of what happened in 2016. Uh, there was not a lot of state polling in some of these states and the state polling that was done, terrific local pollster in Wisconsin. But in a lot of these states, they didn't have uh, strong uh, traditions of really good local polling, and then uh, a challenge to the polling industry, which was um, in past elections, uh, the education of the respondent didn't matter that much. But in 2016, in the Trump era, it matters a lot. Meaning if you're a white non-college graduate, they were voting for Trump by 30 plus points. And so in a lot of these states and a lot of these state pollings, they were uh, talking to an electorate that was too well-educated. And as a consequence, they missed the the Trump surge. Um, And so I think those numbers you're quoting from 16 in retrospect, they're not our numbers. These are polling averages. So it's easy to be fair and neutral. I think those are overstated. I don't think Senator Clinton was ahead by that margin at that time. Um, Other things that happened were uh, the Comey press, the Comey press thing with a week left saying we're going to reopen the email investigation. 
he should have, I mean, to be, I'm a Republican, but the guy, the FBI director should have never injected that into a presidential race. Horrible decision. Um, and then lastly, uh, that was a unique campaign. I say unique because in 2016, 17% of everyone, every voter in the country had a negative opinion of both candidates. And, you know, we, we always said, oh, I'm fed up with both candidates. But, you know, that average is normally six or eight percent. So 17 percent is a lot of people. They were undecided. And at the end of the day, from going from undecided, they broke and voted for Trump by around 20 points. And so the and so that surge of I didn't like either one, but I've got to make up my mind that surge to Trump. Um, all of those things play into what happened in 16. I think 20 is different. I think the polling's better. The local, the statewide polling is better. There's better, more national polls in these key states. And importantly, Trump's the incumbent. Uh, he's well-defined and uh, Biden's positive negative numbers better than Clinton. So, uh, and, and it's only a few days later, but by the way, I checked those numbers today. And if anything, those states are closer today than they were on the 15th. So, we have this very strange election where uh, Biden's margin is quite large nationally, comparative, you know, comparatively. But honest to goodness, Donald Trump is in contact in those six states. And if a Republican carries, uh, if he carries Ohio and he carries the Idaho's and you know Montana's and the normal sort of Republican stuff, those six states really do make the difference. And uh, it's a reminder that as of today, we're still in a competitive presidential election. Yeah, I mean, that really, uh, really stood out to me. I, I tell you, Bill, it's funny. I, I, I remember um, in 2016, it was a week before uh, the election. And uh, my, my wife, she passed away 10 years ago. But she, she was from Manitowoc, Wisconsin. And her dad, my father-in-law, was celebrating his 90th birthday. So I drove up there with my daughter, son-in-law, and grandchildren. And uh, I, at that time, I was among those who thought that this race is over. Clinton's going to win. She's going to win by a bunch. Um, and we're driving up through, uh, and we get out of Milwaukee, we're driving up through Port Washington and Sheboygan uh, up to Manitowoc. And I remember turning to my son-in-law who was driving. And I went, I can't believe all the Trump signs <laughs> I'm seeing. I said, what, what, you know, what's going on here? But even then, I'm going to confess, I, 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 I was stunned by it. I was surprised. Uh, but I, I, I didn't think that that was going to determine the outcome of the election. Clearly, there was a, a shift going on or uh, people expressing uh, themselves, um, you know, and, 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 you know, we just didn't see it. Well, uh, if it'll cheer you up, uh, just so we can... Uh be uh, fellow, fellow travelers on that road. Um, my polling was right and I was wrong. Um, we did a poll for the Chamber of Commerce in Michigan with a week left. We had Trump ahead in Michigan by one. And uh, same two days later, we had him down two in Pennsylvania. I've worked in these states for a very long time. And we had it down three in Wisconsin. And so having done that, what I said was, look, if you lose by this kind, if you lose nationally, then what does not happen is you don't win every single state in Wisconsin, across Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania. You might win one, you know, but you can't you don't win them all. And they don't, you don't run the table if you're using losing nationally by three or four points. 
And of course, that's what we mean by drawing to an inside straight. That's exactly what uh, <laughs> President Trump did. Yeah. And so, as I like to say, because it looked for me, it's better. My polling was right. My judgment was wrong. Um, and uh, but by the way, your story, I've heard many times, like in Western Pennsylvania, same thing. People saying, you know, come to think of it, everywhere I drove in Western Pennsylvania, I was just Trump signs everywhere. Right. Um, so. Uh, so anyway, I said, I'm trying to make sure you don't feel badly. I had, I had the actual data in front of me and I still discounted the, how, you know, whether or not you could carry all those states in a row. Um, and, uh, and of course, by the way, you know, this is what, when I say it's a difficult draw to an inside straight, he won Michigan by 10,000 votes, Pennsylvania by 70. These were incredibly narrow margins. Right. Um, and, uh, it's unusual, but, uh, you know, they those are the same kind of voters and they fell in the line. And and of course, that's again, President Trump is a unique political figure with an absolute unique um, political profile. And, you know, here's something else. Just today, we have a different scale, which is how enthusiastic are you about each candidate? Donald Trump's enthusiasm is higher than Joe Biden's. And across all the candidates we tested, all the Democratic candidates, uh, Trump, for all of 2020, the highest enthusiasm number has been for Donald Trump. And so you should, and it's important to remember the intensity of support that he enjoys among his core supporters. Yeah. And I mean, look, I think I'm, I'm sure that's why he does uh, the rallies that he does. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a different topic, whether that's a wise thing to do in the middle of a pandemic, uh, for sure. And I have my own views on it, but clearly... Uh, when he does them, it showcases that enthusiasm that you're talking about. In terms of issues driving outcome, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and speaking of the pandemic, the, your national report shows that among voters who say the economy is the most important issue, and I think that was 47%, 74% of those are voting for Trump, to only 19% for Biden. Uh, a whopping 55% swing. But for those who say COVID is their issue, which was 39% of the respondents, 90% are for Biden, while only 8% are for Trump, an 82% swing. And then the balance of voters, some 14% break 63% for Biden, 33% for, for Trump. So Bill, how does that sort itself out in the home stretch? particularly with uh, COVID spikes happening now, further roiling the economy, and what other issues are resonating with voters? For example, if there's any more uh, unrest or disturbances uh, that are happening, you know, what's that going to do uh, in terms of the outcome? Well, I think uh, this is the coronavirus election. I think that we have to just face it's the core. And so how do we measure this, Rick? Um, and we have a very simple polling question. Do you think the country's going in the right direction or wrong track? Uh, we did that for NBC, Wall Street Journal on February 28th, right before the COVID really hit in mid-March. Um, and it was 40% right direction. Why is that important? Because when incumbent, when a president gets reelected and incumbents stay in office by a party uh, for president, their average right direction has been around 42 so in late February, the president was right where parties get reelected. Then we go through the pandemic, we go through the economic dislocation, and at one point we drop to 19% right direction today, that's 26. That's a very hard place to run a reelection from. 
And uh, I, I personally believe that the president's COVID di- COVID-19 diagnosis is sort of the Lehman Brothers story in 2008. Lehman Brothers collapsed in mid-September 2008, and that's the campaign. That's what the campaign's about. We had two or three weeks of major meltdown, um, and you could not, uh, in, the, in a campaign, get past that story. Same with and the, the, that story in Iraq. So if you're John McCain, you're trying to win a campaign during the, during the Lehman Brothers collapse and the Iraq war blowback, you know, that's, and so I think for the president, the COVID-19 diagnosis, what's happening around the country with these spikes, it's helped put COVID-19 as the front headline every single day uh, in October. And as an incumbent and as an issue that you're losing by 80 plus points, that's terrible. You don't want the election to be about that, but and, and, and here's the other thing I think you've got to be fair to the press about. I mean, you know, as Republicans like to complain about mainstream media and blah, blah, blah. Sorry, the president of the United States is COVID-19. It's a big story. And then all the other people in the White House and in the circle. And then the what's happening in, through the upper Midwest and the Midwest with the, these infection rates. You, you know, what do you do? Not cover that? That's it's a, it's an important story. But. I mean, I think for the president, it's made it very difficult to move on to, to the economy or to some other agenda. And uh, the crime and violence story that uh, he tried to develop this summer, um, that has just kind of disappeared. And so, um, you know, my own take is uh, I think Vice President uh, Pence did a very good job in the debate of outlining differences between his administration and Senator Harris and uh, Biden on a set of issues the economy, whether they go too far on the Green New Deal, their taxes. I mean, I think the, the vice president outlined what are the core differences of this campaign. And I would be a happy guy if that was the last 14 days of the campaign uh, by the president and uh, the Republican Party to talk about those issue differences over the last 14 days. That would be a I think those would be happy 14 days today compared to the previous 14 days and what the campaign's been about. Bill, do you think, um, and I've heard different opinions on this, uh, uh, that the the debate that's coming up uh, uh, is going to make any difference uh, to this race? Well, I hope so. I think we know, look, again, national polling averages. Before the debate, the president was down seven points. And then after the debate, it's hard to measure the debate plus his diagnosis. He was down 10 10 and a half points. So the national number moved three and a half points to, to uh, Biden. Now, witness my story about Access Hollywood and uh, Trump's comeback from those numbers in October of 2016. I hope that uh, the performance on Thursday night for the president stabilizes the national number and the national number starts drifting closer to back to minus five or seven. If it does, if it was five to seven, it puts those six key states in play and it's stabilizing for the entire Republican Party. Um, and because the other thing we have to remember is uh, it's not just the presidential election. As I mean, if you do what I do for a living, we're looking at U.S. senators, members of Congress, and then importantly, state legislative bodies uh, in North Carolina, Texas, Georgia, Arizona. The Democrats are spending a fortune to turn those state legislative bodies to, de- to from Republican to Democrat and affect redistricting where, where there are going to be new seats. That's a that's a you know institutionally as a party that's a big deal, and so. If the president stabilizes and wins these states, it does things like you win a Senate seat, you keep a state legislative majority. If it doesn't and the president loses those states, 
or it's too close or he loses, those legislative majorities, a Senate seat, all those things that can be gone. And so it's very important how well the president closes his campaign. And, and I tell you, speaking of that, and this is a loaded question because I know you, you, you <laughs> guys are handling uh, you know, Senate races. You have uh, senators that you're, you're representing. Um, but what are the Senate races to watch right now? Uh, I know most of the focus has been on incumbent Republican senators who are in danger, but are there also Democrats at risk here too? Uh, what, 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 how, how is that going to sort of play out? Well, uh, there's a Senator Jones from Alabama who's a Democrat. Um, he beat a very controversial, barely beat a very controversial Republican nominee in a special election. In a normal presidential level turnout, it's hard to imagine. He's running against a former uh, you know, Auburn College football coach. Hard to imagine he carried that seat. That means Republicans would be at 54 seats. If the Democrats win the presidency, they got to win four. Uh, if they if they don't, they got to win five. And so, um, I think you've got to get say the Democrats are favored right now in Colorado, Arizona, and Maine. And it means that states like Iowa, right next door to you, Iowa, North Carolina, the Georgia seats, um, and then you know no one talks about it, but actually we have very competitive Senate races in Kansas and Alaska and Montana. These are not states where people are used to having a competitive Democratic candidate for Senate. But um, when we talk about them, by the way, what's the story of this cycle as well? Money. Um, imagine this. You're Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, another race that's very close. You set an all-time, all-time Republican incumbent record. You raised $28 million in the third quarter. Oh, that's right. Your Democratic candidate who is opposing you raises $57 million in one quarter. In Alaska, the Democratic nominee raised $9 million in the third quarter. The outpouring of money to support the Democratic candidates is massive, and it's kind of changing our standard politics. And so as a consequence of that, like South Carolina, like Kansas, like Alaska, there's another tier of seats no one's talking about. But in general, um, this is really simple. We have states that close early. Uh, like North Carolina on election night, uh, that's a pivotal Senate race. If Trump wins North Carolina and it says the Republican senator's too close to call, that's a sign that I think, the, again, it's a positive sign. You know, for all this talk about election night and being taking weeks, you know, if you look at this election pretty quickly, you normally know Ohio, Florida, and North Carolina, Georgia you have a pretty good feel for those states. Those are states the president has to essentially sweep. And so if, if something happens at a two in the morning after the election, if uh, the Trump, I'm sorry, if Vice President Biden carried Florida, you know, I don't, I don't see how to get to 270 electoral votes. So uh, in, a, in a good night, the president's carrying these states and we have a long count ahead. On a bad night, uh, we don't need three weeks to know who's going to win. Maybe it's two, maybe you don't have enough states to actually call 270. But if you do what we do for a living, if the president doesn't carry Florida, um, and you know, here's a, a you're, you're a political buff, history buff, it, honest to God, from Abraham Lincoln forward, no Republican has ever won the White House without carrying Ohio, and no Republican has carried the White House since Calvin Coolidge without carrying Florida. So, um, you know, 
those when you look at those states on election night, we're going to have a very, very, very good feel for uh, is this a quick night or is this going to take a long time to figure out? You know, there's been a lot uh, made uh, about voters uh, lying to pollsters. And I, I'm wondering what's your take on that. I mean, you, you guys have been doing this for a really long time. <laughs> you, you're among the, the the best in the business, and you know our, our firm has used public opinion strategies. I, I I've lost count of how many times just because you are so good at what you do. Um, but what about this in terms of voters? Um, perhaps uh, not being honest. Are there steps that you've taken to try yeah. to deal with that equation, or is it just a, is is it not a real problem uh, and I, just something that's been conjured up? Uh, I, I don't think it's a problem of people lying to pollsters. What people sometimes do is they say undecided. I don't think there's a lot of deliberate lying, but let's be honest about 2020. First, we're going to have the largest turnout in American history easily by votes cast. Probably in terms of percent of the electorate, it could be the highest since 1960. We have 25 million votes already cast today compared to 5 million at the same time four years ago. It's extraordinary. And we have election law changes everywhere where we've eased um, absentee and other voting. So we have the highest round ever, no one's ever seen, all new election laws, liberal absentee ballots, live ballots, actual ballots being mailed in nine states, including California, our largest state. No one's ever seen this before. And so uh, I'm very uh, humble. Uh, if you've never seen something before as a pollster, you should be very, very humble about trying to predict it. And then here's the other real problem. The other real problem is President Trump's core supporters are non-college younger guys who vote for him by a 30, 40 point margin. Guess who are the least, some of the least likely people to get on the telephone and chit chat about politics in a survey? Yep. Your average guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I don't think when people talk about a shy Trump voter, I don't I don't think that what I do think is there are parts of the parts of the electorate that do not participate in surveys or uh, are very difficult to reach no matter what we do, either online, digital. And people criticize phone surveys. It's not phone surveys. I say, what you think those non-college white guys at 30 year old is because they're dying to do an opt in panel and do an Internet survey or on their phone or on their phone. No, they don't do it. And guess what? They do vote. Right now in North Carolina, by the way, one out of five voters voting in North Carolina is no previous general election vote history. And that's early vote. So wow. uh, so my point, Rick, is if, if in fact, uh, there's a miss here, I don't think it's people lying. I don't think it's shy Trump. I'm just acknowledging there are, it's very difficult to get some segments of the electorate to participate in ways that allow us to know that we are profiling the actual, honest to goodness, 150 million people that voted. And um, and just, you know, by the way, last point for me, from my perspective is having worked for NBC Wall Street Journal, the last, the telephone polls, the last weekend of 2016 had Hillary Clinton ahead by 3.5 points as on average. She won by 2.2. That's a, it's a point, it's 1.3 points. If in the midst of all of that stuff, you do all of that work and you're 1.3 points off nationally, that's incredibly good work and incredibly stable research. Um, so uh, I know the frustration were about 2016, but at, in terms of this research predicting the national vote, believe me, in the midst of all that, being 1.3 points 
within the margin was a very, you know, means that the, the actual mechanics of what we do, uh, we and others do this pretty well. Not perfect, and no one's getting big doing victory laps on you. We got this thing nailed for 2020. I have to ask how uh, how are you voting, Bill? I, not how who you're voting for. I meant oh. are you voting well, in person or are you voting uh, by uh, I, for the for, I love first off. I love going to vote. I love going to vote on the, my election polls. I love that's part of a big. I mean, I do this. I love this country. I love what I do. I love voting, and it's a big part of my morning. We do that. Then we come here and we have like Mr. Omelet with the whole staff. <laughs> but uh, in the coronavirus era and my age, my wife uh, intervened and we voted by absentee uh, and we are early absentee voters. And I have one good story to tell you how I voted. I was working in the Republican National Committee. I was I had this intern driving me to this event and I said, have you voted yet? And she said, oh, I don't know. I haven't decided I'm going to vote on the judges. And so I said, pull off the road, please pull off the road. She pulls off the road. I said, hey, are you getting a paycheck? She says, well, yeah. I said, "Is it who's it from? She says, the Republican National Committee. And uh, I said, and who does that represent? She says, well, it's the Republican Party. I said, so here's the point. If you want to decide how you're going to vote, that's America. You can do that. If you're taking a paycheck from the Republican National Committee, you don't have to agonize. You don't think about who you're voting for. It's punch, 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 punch. And if you don't want to do punch, 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 don't be an intern. Don't take the check. And if you're taking the check, you're voting straight party. So tonight you vote straight party, you send your ballot and you took the paycheck. So uh, I believe in the cause. I'm a, I'm a, I've devoted my life to this party and what I believe. But as well, uh, it, you know, my old boss had a thing on the door. If you take the king's shilling, you do the king's bidding. Um, so <laughs> you, you you do not have to agonize for me, Rick, about or or feel awkward about asking who I voted for. Okay. That has been very clear for the last forty years. Yeah, uh, I, I I know that, Bill. I know that. Um, I, the one thing I, uh, two other just quick things. Yeah. Um, polarization. I mean, we are seeing polarization. I you know I've been around uh, for seven decades now, and and. Uh, I lived through the 60s and 70s, and certainly there was polarization then, but I, I never saw it to the extent that we're seeing polarization now. The, it really is tribal, and I, is it the new normal, or might there be some pathway to civility um, down the line? Well, um, first, it's not Donald. That's We cannot blame Donald Trump. I have a lot of data over 20 years to say he's the end of the line, but it's been going on for 20 years. There's a lot of data over this time period that says over that time period, the two parties each got more illogic and further apart. And each president became, each president was evaluated from his or his party compared to the other party, but the largest gap in American polling history. All that was happening from Ronald Reagan through uh, Barack Obama one little pause was George H.W. Bush, uh, who had kind of stopped that for a while during. But that's that's a 30-year history of this country evolving into this kind of politics. So um, good good number. We've got 80 um, percent of Democrats say Republicans are racist and 80 percent of Republicans say the Democrats are socialist. 
If you think your opponent's a socialist or you think your opponent's a racist, there's not much middle ground. Um, and now we have a lot of other information that says it's not like, you know, we watch three networks. People choose their Facebook friends, their friendships, their social media sites, where they get news. And uh, we've kind of devolved back to where we were. If you read about the beginning of the country, where it's not exactly, you know, in the old days, the parties had their own papers then in the 1770s, 80s, 90s. We kind of have that now, which is not official. But uh, so, and um, I live with a, 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 I'm devoted, I love my wife, but she's progressive and honest to God every morning. And I, I try to, I work very hard to read across the scale, but every morning I hear from her what she's read uh, and what she's reading. And it's not what I read. It's a, <laughs> it is a different filter every single day. And, um, and, I, and so uh, I, you know, if you remember um, Senator Obama, when he ran saying we're not a red or blue, not, you know, we're one America uh, I don't think his administration ever came close to accomplishing that goal. Um, I don't think that uh, whoever wins is going to accomplish that goal. Um, I think, and uh, it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, it, we are in for a very, very difficult time. And whoever gets elected is going to have a very difficult time governing under this structure. Yeah, I, uh, I, I have to say, I, I have this sort of longing feeling, Bill, when, when uh, we were working on the Clinton Presidential Library opening and I was down in Little Rock for, God, eight, eight, eight and a half months, uh, uh, and uh, George W. Bush was president, Huckabee was the governor of Arkansas, and I got to tell you, I, I, I could not, you know, I agree with them on practically no issues, mm -hmm. uh, very few, but... Uh, the Bush White House and Huckabee could not have possibly been more helpful. Uh, and I really appreciated uh, everything that um, they did to help us with the opening of the library. And, and so I had this longing feeling. Uh, in fact, I even I, I sent Huckabee a note at the end and he sent me a handwritten note. And I, I, I still have it because it, it just meant a lot to me. And I, you know, so I, I sort of wish uh, as the grandfather of, of six right. that we could be uh, a more civil society, even if we hold our political beliefs very close to our heart. Well, I, my very, very, very first candidate was George H.W. Bush. I joined the campaign in 1979 uh, before Labor Day, before he took off. He, he is, he was a class act. And if you want to feel good about our country, Google George H.W. Bush letter to Bill Clinton and read the handwritten note he left in the presidential desk on January 20th. I have read it. And I, so I know what, exactly what you're talking about. And that, that's exactly it. That's, you know, I, I long for those days. Um, and um, I, I would love to believe that that's not just uh, some distant memory uh, that it's still possible that you, you could have that as the fear. You know, I take a look at George W. Bush and the Obamas now, right. um, or uh, George W. Bush and the Clintons. And, uh, um, you know, I see civility. So uh, that's what gives me hope anyway. I have to ask one last question. Yeah. Talk about the loaded question. Who has a lower favorability rating these days, 
Congress or the news media? <laughs> I know it's one of the two. <laughs> I, I don't know. You don't have to check that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, off the top, I, every other number and everything I've done, I've, I, you know, I know this stuff pretty well. So I will, I will send a correction. I think that Congress is lower. I think the news media, but I could be wrong about that. I will, I will uh, go check. But I, but my my feeling is I think Congress is just a little bit uh, lower. But I, I will go, we'll go check that number for you. <laughs> All right, appreciate. All right. It. And I, I tell you, I really, really appreciate. It. This has been a great conversation. I am a political junkie, and and uh, you know, I pride myself instead of uh, sitting down in the evening and reading a good novel, you know, I'll look at, uh, at poll results. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it's probably a, a sickness on my part, but uh, <laughs> it's one that I've had for, uh, for decades now and I love it. And this is just a wonderful opportunity uh, to chat with you, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you for your years of friendship and we wish you and your family all the best and, uh, uh, and so thank you for having me as your guest today.